Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. We're off this week reporting on some fantastic news stories, so we're bringing you some of our favorite podcast pieces from the past in this Rewind episode. The first piece will be a story from video producer Tim Leonard and myself on composting in Reno. We follow a company encouraging people to live more sustainably. After that, gaming reporter Howard Stutz goes over the history of gambling in the state, from cowboys to the modern strip casinos we see today. All right, safety first. This route is more spread out than most of our routes. Um, kind of longer distances in between stops, but I actually prefer that. And then all the hills. I know somebody who lives here and they give me tomatoes sometimes when I ride past. Hey Tim, how's it going? Hey Joey. Uh, so we just heard from somebody up top. Who was that? That was Mike Harrison, a Reno rot rider, as they call themselves. He works for a company called Down to Earth Composting, and he rides an electric bike around town collecting people's compost for them. So compost, for those who aren't aware, is food scrap or biodegradable waste that is then mixed together to create fertilizer for crops. Things like eggshells, banana peels, moldy bread, and salads that your kids won't eat can all go into compost and they'll be broken down and later they can help foster healthy, nutrient-rich soil for your garden. I could grow hair, I would be a full-blown hippie. When I'm doing this, it's like, yep, I, I see the path that led me here and I'm so lucky to be living now when there's this explosion of new technology that just makes it better and better and better. Mike grew up biking the streets of Colorado before becoming a bike messenger in San Francisco in the 90s. He's always loved biking and being outside. A couple years ago, around downtown Reno and midtown Reno, I started noticing down-to-earth composting. And I just thought, you know, as a side gig, that would be really cool. And so I got in contact with Oz, and it kind of went from there. Oz is Oz Cupaloo, the CEO of Down-to-Earth Composting. Mostly we're collectors and haulers of food scraps. So if I made dinner and I had like some eggshells and some leftover like the heads of carrots or something, I could just throw them in a bin and then you'd come and pick it up. Exactly. We come by your house once a week, just like trash and recycling. So if your day is Tuesday, you leave your bucket out for us. And depending on where you live in the Reno area, we are either on an e-bike pulling a trailer or we drive our truck around and also collect compost. All right, so we're gonna turn left here. One of those collectors is Mike. He pulls a trailer twice the size of his bicycle behind him, stopping at people's houses to pick up their compost. And looking both ways. Boom. The trailer technology is really taking off. So this trailer is basically this steel frame and then we built on top of it. So it's highly customizable. There's a real explosion in, in this kind of mobility. So what we just heard there is uh, Mike riding his bike actually. And Tim, you and I followed him around for during our reporting on the story, right? Yeah, it was kind of hard to keep up with him. Mike's kind of a speed demon with his, even with the trailer behind him, he's still hauling around, you know, the hills of Northwest Reno. 
Yeah, it was pretty impressive to watch his uh, his speed. But can you tell me a little bit about kind of what the process is that he's doing when he's picking these things up? It's not like he's just like riding by real quick and like picking up a bucket and putting it on the trailer, right? No, he's got uh, he's got a bike. It because of the trailer hitch, it doesn't have a kickstand, so he's got this like method down where he pulls up, puts the bike down in a specific way so that it doesn't roll away, and then runs up to the compost bin. They have these special collection bins outside in front of their houses switches it out with a clean bin, brings the compost full bin back to his trailer and then picks up his bike and carries on. Yeah, and he also like the the ones in front of people's houses are a little bit smaller and then he has bigger bins and he's kind of transferring between the small bins and the big bins. He's also cleaning them out with this like organic solution that he's using. He was saying that it doesn't smell that bad, but I would say that you and me might think that he's just getting used oh. to the smell. <laughs> yeah, we definitely smelled <laughs> The, the compost and what do they do with the compost after that yeah so then from there it goes to carson city where they partner with another composting company called full circle compost um and it takes about six months for that food waste to go from waste to uh, a usable fertilizer we give soil back to all of our members two times a year so it's really cool because you composting but you you don't have to take care of a pile in your backyard and like ask yourself like why does it smell the way that it's smelling? We like take care of all the dirty work for everybody. And Oz's notice since the pandemic, the business has seen growth where others have faced hardships. I mean, with like the shutdown and everything going on, that kind of made people start having to cook for themselves. Whereas before everyone was ordering takeout. And so now people are kind of seeing where their trash cans are filling up really quick with food scraps. And so during the pandemic, we were actually one of the luckier businesses. We grew a ton because of people cooking at home and wanting to reuse their food scraps rather than just throw them away. So the pandemic actually did good for us. The ordinary American is just throwing out their compost with their trash. And there are serious environmental reasons to not do that. This prevents this stuff from going into a landfill, becoming methane and causing those problems. Down to Earth delivers compost to their customers twice a year. So what are their clients doing with their compost? Well, they're helping their gardens, right? That's what compost is for. Here's Oz again talking about the soil in Nevada. Our soils here are really high in salt and then not moist at all. And so I think building a healthy soil for your crops to grow is absolutely important. And I mean, Reno, we have a couple things that grow really well, right? Like tomatoes kind of take off here and are pretty easy to grow. And so I've got, I do like tomatoes and peppers for the most part that I don't really have to babysit, but I mean, people, there's a ton of farms here in like Reno proper and they can grow kale and so many different things. So it's definitely doable. And I think gardening definitely starts with healthy soil. And I'm a gardener and I love all the, the full circle of gardening. So I feel like, all right, I'm doing my part. And maybe it's one of those things where if everybody did something like this, the world would be a different place. And if everybody got out of their car, got on a bike, the world would be, you know, our roads would be different. Our interactions would be different. And that's a personal thing for me. I own a car. I'm, I'm a hypocrite, but I, I try to minimize how much I use it. And I notice, you know, there, there's a there's very little you need a car for if if you can do what you do on a bike. Yeah, if you couldn't tell by now, Mike is kind of into biking. And while this story is about composting and a company pushing for people to live more sustainably, it's also about Mike, who embodies that lifestyle of sustainable living. In a general sense, I would say this is the future of what's called micro-mobility. I think all of us are going to see more and more 
e-bikes, pulling trailers, hauling a variety of things. So I see these Amazon and FedEx drivers, you know, I cross paths with them when I'm doing this, and they seem very, very unhappy. Hopping in and out of a car, trying to park it, fighting with traffic all day long, that's one thing. This is a whole, this is a, a more connected system, I think. You can see there's a way, and I get this way myself, when you're in a car, you're in this little cocoon, you're separated, everybody is just like an opponent in a certain way. I kind of feel sorry for people who aren't out enjoying the day. So many people are kind of trapped in that lifestyle. We've heard these terms like gig economy or sharing economy or mobile businesses, which I did a story on last December, or micro-mobility, right? And, and these are a shift away from the traditional office job. Look at how so many companies are maintaining a hybrid work-from-home, work-from-office schedule post-pandemic. The Rot Riders were pioneering that type of work pre-pandemic. And Mike thinks most people will be interested in that work that connects you to your community and gets you outside more. And in his case, e-bikes are making that more of a reality. I'm another person on a bicycle doing work. And I think we're gonna see more and more and more of this. Even in just the last couple of years, I've noticed, yeah, it's exponential growth. And it isn't just people doing work, but like I'm seeing a lot of moms on an e-bike with their kid in the, in the seat in the back. And you can tell they're just totally enjoying it. Whereas if it was a regular bike, that would be hard work. I figure some people are gonna perceive what I'm doing as cool or fun. And then other people are gonna be like, wow, what a sad life, you know, to be stuck on a bike. And to me, it's the opposite of that. But I, I get that we're a car culture and a lot of people think if you're on a bike, there must be something wrong. And how is biking in Reno? I've noticed a lot of new bike lanes and they redid part of Virginia Street for bikes, but it's not perfect. And I wanted to know what it was like to bike around town. Reno, I would give them credit. Bike lanes are getting better. And so it's easier to interact with traffic. Anybody who is an urban bicyclist here will tell you you're on a bike lane. And then suddenly at the worst possible moment, it just ends. And, and there was no sign that said, hey, in a little bit, you're out of luck. So you just have to cope. And, and part of that is maybe go ahead and, and jump into traffic a little bit, use up that right lane, make yourself obvious. And just in general, uh, motorists who are not aware that you're there, and so sometimes they'll just pull up right behind you and almost hit you. People will make a left you know, directly in front of you. So there's that watching for objects on the road. So, you know, cause stuff gets out there and if it's big enough and weird enough, you hit it and it's an instant flat tire or it can just take you down. And what about the issues, not with the transportation part of the job, but with the composting side? Yeah, so Oz told us that one issue they have is people who compost those bags of chips or those quote unquote compostable forks, while they may break down, they aren't really adding any nutrients to the soil and could be adding microplastics. What I do see as a big issue are these products that are labeled compostable. and just with that, sometimes there's high level of microplastics that are in them. So technically it is compostable. It'll break down, but it's going to leave trace amounts of plastic in the soil, which isn't the end of the world. I would much rather see it compost and then go to the landfill. 
but that's something to look out for. And a lot of times, like the plastic bags are, that are compostable or the cutlery that's compostable, it really takes longer for them to break up than other things that go in the compost. And then we're not really getting nutrients from them. And that's what we're looking for is like a nutrient dense soil that's coming from our compost. It's not going to make a nutrient dense soil as, as much as like tomato tops and strawberry tops and stuff like that. I also wanted to know about composting in Vegas. Here in Reno, we have a more temperate climate, but this podcast has to reach everyone in the state. And I know Vegas is pretty hot. You can still compost in Las Vegas. It's a little bit trickier than Oregon where it's like prime conditions, but you can still do it. You can compost in a drier climate. I like to water my compost a lot, especially for the little worms. It's very important for the worms to be in a moist environment. And so that's why we need to keep our piles a little bit moister. So in Las Vegas, even if you maybe water your compost pile once a week, that might not be enough because those little worms need that moist environment so that they can come in and do their jobs and everything. My goal for my company is to kind of diminish because that way, if there's no need for down to earth, then that means people are composting in their backyards or with their neighbors and they're all going in on one compost pile or we can start community piles at farms and churches and everything like that. On top of bringing the community together, as you can tell from people like Mike, it brings a lot of joy, purpose, and exercise to someone's day. It forces me to do a good day's exercise, whereas normally at 5.30 in the morning, I would make excuses like, oh, I'll do it later. Or what, you know, when there's people depending on it, I have to do it. And so it gets me out. And as I'm doing it, I get happy. When I go do other jobs, you know, everybody's a professional. Everybody knows why they're there. But that, that joy isn't always apparent, you know, and with this, it's consistent. So this part of the job reminds me of being a milkman in the 1950s, which I like. Composting is not about being perfect. It's about doing better than we've done before. So if we can have different options and different things that we do to like help our soils, then I think we're doing great. Really intimidating trying to save the world as one person, but like just start and start trying. You can make a huge difference and a ripple effect. This story was reported and produced by Tim Leonard and reported and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Jackie Valley. All right, and so I am here with Howard Stutz. You cover gaming and the business end of, of, of what's going on in, in Las Vegas. Gaming is such an important part of the state. It's the, the main economic driver, or it was the main economic driver for a long time. It's shifted a lot. There's been lots of changes, both in power dynamics and how the state approaches dealing with gaming. How did gaming come to Nevada originally? Well, it was here when Nevada was a territory, but it was in all the saloons. There are really four key years that I like to focus on. It's 1931 was when the first bill in the Nevada legislature was introduced to legalize gaming in Nevada. And so it was legalized. It went through... Finally, 1959, Governor Grant Sawyer introduced the Gaming Regulatory Act, and it was basically when you created what we have now, the modern uh, system of gaming regulation that's been copied in other states. The other 
key date, another key date was 1967. The legislature approved allowing corporations to own casino companies. And it wasn't no longer just the single casino owner. It was a corporation, could be publicly traded, but we didn't see a publicly traded company until 1972 when um, Harris went public. You saw corporations come in. Uh, Hilton Hotels, for example, came in and bought what was then the International and the Las Vegas Hilton. So you saw this type of movement for on corporations getting involved in gaming. And then in Las Vegas, probably one of the most key dates was 1989. In the year 1989 was when the Mirage opened. That was the first all new from the ground up mega resort on the Strip in more than in probably about 15 years when Steve Wynn built it. It was the most expensive uh, hotel casino in in Nevada at the time, 565 million, which I think now that's probably what a couple of rooms cost in some in some of these Strip resorts. But that's that that's kicked off the massive building boom that we saw in the Las Vegas Strip that began in the 1990s and, and continued up really into, until 2010, post-recession when the Cosmopolitan opened. So that, that those are really the key events, key moments, key years that happened with Nevada gaming. 1931 was when it when it started here. Why did Nevada decide to bring gaming? Gaming was going on, but it was after the Great Depression, you have to remember. So Phil Tobin was the assemblyman. He introduced the assembly, assembly bill in 98, which allowed for wide open gambling. It was a way maybe to get some taxes into the state at the time. They just decided that it was the timing seemed to be right to do it. It was going on, never regulated. So now they went ahead and made it, made it legal. Why do they legalize gaming? Taxes. For the, you know, they need the taxes. Why do you think sports betting has been legalized? That's one, to get rid of the illegal market, and two, get the tax and regulate it. And that's what they're, that's what, that's what we see, but it's foremost within gaming expansion around the country these days. When did Las Vegas come into its own as this, as this metropolitan area, as this place for people to go to gamble? And was the mob involved in that early part? Mob was probably part of it in the fifties with the building of the Flamingo and Bugsy, Bugsy Seagulls. Honestly, the best history movie on Las Vegas is the movie Casino. Because uh, that talked about, discussed how the mob in the 60s and mainly the 70s. Gaming really started to change in the 70s. Part of it was from Reno because of Bill Hara. I think when Harris took Harris public in the, 19, the 1970s, that really was a, a turning point for the industry. Harris Reno is now closed and it's being remodeled into, I think they're calling it Reno City Center. I think really as corporations came in, that got the organized crime elements out of Nevada. But, you, you know, there's history here with that. I mean, we you know, we have a mob museum in, Las Ve- in downtown Las Vegas. They, they, so we still have pay homage to the mob in so many ways. When did gaming in general in Nevada hit its peak? 2007 was the biggest year for gaming revenues, over $12 billion. That was the record year, $12.8 billion. If you talk about just pure gaming numbers alone, that's the apex. That was the high point. It was really starting to pick up. I said, after, after the Mirage opened, and then it was followed by Excalibur and Luxor. Luxor opened a few years later. But that's that's really 1989. That's where it started. And then they've started that building boom through that decade of the 90s. By 1998, 1999, you had Mandalay Bay, the Venetian. So you saw this huge building boom going on into up until the mid 2000s. The Wynn, Las Vegas, when when Steve Wynn came back and built the Wynn. It just kept on. We kept on seeing more and more mega resorts. There was a turn towards convention business that we saw on a much larger scale than Las Vegas ever was before. 
with this, the bigger resorts came the more entertainment, the more non-gaming attractions. Somewhere in that, within that time frame, it switched where gaming revenues were not the driver for Las Vegas. It was the non-gaming revenues. But pre-pandemic, gaming revenues on the Strip were about 35% of the overall revenues for the casinos. 65% came from the hotel rooms, the restaurants, the entertainment, the retail. That's where the real big change is. That has really been the change over the years. People don't come here per se to gamble. You can do that in many major cities and states in the U.S. They come here for the Las Vegas, for the experience that is Las Vegas. One big thing that Nevada has had to face is that Nevada is not the only state where gambling is legal anymore. It's kind of known as that, but gaming is legal in a lot of states now. How did that transition happen? When did that happen? And how has Nevada dealt with that? When I started covering gaming back in the 80s, it was Nevada and New Jersey. And the only place in New Jersey was Atlantic City. And then you have to remember when Atlantic City was legalized in 1979, this said it's going to be the death of Nevada, death of Las Vegas. No, it wasn't. And it turned out not to be. So they moved along the two, two markets where the two epicenters of gambling, legal gambling in the U.S., Nevada, Las Vegas and Reno and Atlantic City. What happened was in 1989, South Dakota decided to legalized gambling, small stakes gaming, in a small town called Deadwood, South Dakota. And the reason for that is Deadwood was an Old West town, and it's famous for its saloons, the Old West, Dakota Territories gambling. Deadwood, South Dakota decided they wanted to try to revive tourism. So they legalized small stakes gaming in the little saloons and casinos in, in, in the historic district of Deadwood. A few years later, Iowa and the Isle Capri, was the company, wanted to bring a riverboat casino to Iowa, legalized casinos, legalized riverboat gaming. Iowa was right out, was the first state to really legalize casinos. And then it started, it just started to flood. Mississippi was pretty close to Iowa in legalizing it. Mississippi copied Nevada's regulatory structure almost to the T, um, same type of system. But there was the concern, obviously, that, okay, now all these states are legalizing gaming. Is this going to hurt Las Vegas? Well, it didn't because the operators in Las Vegas, they're the ones that went into these different states and opened these casinos. I, I remember going out to cover the opening of a in Harris, Harris Joliet in Illinois when they launched their first riverboat casino out there. Well, as you walk in to the casino, to the casino boat, there were signs up of showing all the photos of all of Harris properties in Nevada. So it was a marketing tool get people to learn, you know, you know, it's fun to go to a casino, you know, that's an form of entertainment, but get them to come out to the mecca of gaming either in Las Vegas or Reno. That's what the way Harris looked at it. That's the way a lot of these companies ended up doing, getting involved in Atlantic City. Nevada's tax rate is 6.75% for the casino industry. Every, every state has a different tax rate. Certain states only have a limited number of licenses. Pennsylvania was just 15 licenses. Maryland is just six licenses. That's why the tax rates are so much higher in other states, because they are, they are limited by the number of licenses. I think I last checked on the gaming control board, it was like 271 casinos in Nevada. So that's the difference. And that's why when, when you can't compare Nevada to another state, it really is an apples to oranges comparison. People aren't going to Las Vegas just to gamble anymore. They're going to Las Vegas for this experience. When did that shift happen and why? The mid-90s, it started shifting. When Sheldon Adelson bought the Sands, one of the first things he did was build the Sands Expo. So you build another 2 million square feet of convention space 
You've seen other hotels on the Strip add large convention space. So conventions and meetings became a big part of the Las Vegas business makeup. It filled a lot of the rooms midweek because the weekends, you're always going to get people to Vegas in the, in the weekends, okay? But in the midweek, I needed to fill the rooms. That's where the convention and meeting business came in. But then at the same time, they built these retail malls. I remember Caesars Forum Shops, after it opened for a time, it was the number one most profitable shopping mall in the world. The high-end restaurants, we saw the, the celebrity chefs all started, became a thing and all started coming to Vegas. So that's really where the transition started in the 90s and just kind of evolved, kept on evolving through, along with this growth of gambling around the U.S., these regional markets. You had to give people a reason to come here, not just to gamble, because you can go gamble. You can go down the street in some of your regional markets. So recently, in the last couple of years, we've we've seen kind of another, I would say, reckoning for, for Las Vegas in, in terms of the pandemic, right? That was a major thing. And we're going to get to that a little bit later on. But first, I want to talk about these two shifts away from the casino billionaires, right? We have Steve Wynn, who has, has, has left the Wynn Casino Company for the most part, and, and Sheldon Adelson, who passed away recently during the pandemic, actually. What does this mean for Nevada? Well, starting with Steve Wynn in 2018, the Wall Street Journal came out with a, a huge report about sexual harassment and numerous allegations that were brought up. Within a month, Steve Wynn stepped down as CEO, then sold all his stock and departed from the company. So that was a huge shift because his name was on the Wynn Resorts. It was a monumental shift. He was, in a sense, the modern face, the modern era of, of, of the Nevada gaming industry of Las Vegas, of the Strip, and he's out. And so that company went through a, a very monumental shift in management, and the companies moved forward. Sands is a different story. This is a company that Shell Nadelson bought the Sands, blew it up, and built the Venetian and Palazzo and the Sands Expo. He was the first to go into Macau in 2003, and Sands is probably the biggest American company in Macau. They've got, I want to say, about six or seven resorts in, in Macau. They went into Singapore. He was the driving force of that company. He passed away of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. He battled it for more than a year. Within a couple of months, less than two months later, Sands announced they've sold all their Las Vegas properties to a group of VICI Holdings, which is a real estate investment trust, and Apollo, which is going to manage the casinos. And the Sands Expo is a $6.25 billion sale. Sands is now basically going to, is no longer going to be Las Vegas Sands. They're going to be Sands Corporation. And they're going to basically be an Asian gaming company with their holdings in Macau and Singapore. Well, at the same time, Resorts World Las Vegas opens. This is the $4.3 billion resort owned by Gentin out of Malaysia. So Vegas continues to change and move on. COVID was a, was a major, a major deal in, in Nevada. I mean, it, it hit the state really hard. And if you look back at 2007, when the Great Recession happened, I mean, Nevada was hit really hard. I never thought I'd live to, to see a day where I'm walking down the strip and everything's closed. It was a very eerie feeling to see that for, for, for the 78 days that gaming was shut down. And as you said, Joey, the challenge coming back from people getting on an airplane again. So getting people to come back, getting people comfortable. I think it's obvious people came back. The first, the first few weekends, back in March, when, when things were opened up to 35% and March Madness hit and the places were, it was great weather in Vegas, the places were packed. And it's been that way. A lot of these companies went out and they, they took on a lot of debt. 
and they redid, but they also redid their balance sheets in some way. So in a sense, they were doing that. If there was a shutdown, another shutdown or something would happen, they were, they had the liquidity to, 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 to weather through it. That's what, that's what a lot of these companies did. And they've cut some costs in different areas. What was the future of Las Vegas looking like? What were they shifting towards? Do they need to shift? All these different technology, gaming technology companies, gaming equipment providers, they really are technology companies now. The slot machine manufacturers, they're creating mobile wallets to be used on casino floors. And I think that's, that's where we're headed. Nevada has benefited from the growth of sports betting in the, in the U.S. Sports betting was legalized in May of 2018 by the U.S. Supreme Court. These Nevada companies have gotten involved in sports betting in all these other states and other markets. So it's, a, it's just like when casinos expanded. Nevada companies went in and built casinos in other states. Nevada companies are going in and doing sports betting in other states. So that's where we're really, that's where Nevada is headed. It's become a, the technology hub for, the gaming, for gaming in the U.S. And I think that's, that's really the direction that we're seeing with, the, with, with our state where it's headed to. That's the one thing. I guess the state's always going to evolve, I, I evolve, I think, and we'll, hopefully I'll be around to cover it a lot more. So that's my goal. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. This show was produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Jackie Valley. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. You can also email us at podcast at Our theme song is from Emily Pratt, and we have additional music from Storyblocks, June Pearson, and our own Joey Lovato. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>